On January 17, 2011, Berkeley Rep Artistic Director Tony Tacconi sat down with SDC Foundation Associate Director Ellen Rusconi to discuss artistic leadership in today's theater. Hi, I'm SDC Director Karen Eisenberg, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the SDCF and the American Theater Wing. Let's start with your career trajectory. Okay. I know you you were born in Queens and you went to BC. I went to Boston College and uh, survived the Jesuits. Um, um, Actually uh, enjoyed college quite a bit because I was an English major. Um, Developed my love for writing there and... um, and also uh, had the benefit of a firmly liberal arts um, education. Um, so I was taking as many classes, I think, in, in you know weird subjects. I was not a theater major. They didn't even have a theater department at BC then. Um, and uh, I was a poet. And uh, figured out shortly afterwards that a, a career in poetry <laughs> would be akin to being homeless. So, um, and I was a... I was from a, I'm from a big Latin family, and so I really wanted a family. Um, of course, to have a family, you have to have a wife or a person who's willing to have a family with you. Um, so, uh, but, I, but I did have that, and so um, raising a family became a kind of important thing for me to want to do. And, and um, um, even when I, I didn't make a lot of money at all for many, many years, I didn't even think you could make money. In fact... I would say one of the biggest differences about my generation growing up versus the generation that's come after us is that we weren't we weren't we were not burdened by the word career. You know, we were we were sixties people, and so we we came into the into the work with the idea that we were cultural workers. You know, we were not careerists. We were not doing this for some resume. Building, we were doing it because we felt like the work was a place where we could have a dialogue with with the world about what was going on, and we could interchange our ideas with with those um, of our colleagues and our friends. They're really friends. I mean, even the word "colleague" didn't come into our into our vocabulary until late in the day. So, so um, you know, my 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 recollections of college and all that are really recollections about being a member of SDS, fighting against the war. Um, be listening to great music, being really stoned, um, writing some really bad poetry, um, which we thought was really good, um, but also just kind of embracing life in the world and thinking. Like thinking was kind of celebrated as a as a as a feature of one's existence, and I mean I mean thinking like in an active way, and actually it's kind of influenced my work because I, I think. Like, for, for example, I think many actors are taught how not to think. I think he's not very active. That's not, it's kind of boring. You want to be feeling. And I think that's um, a huge mistake. I find thinking to be extremely interesting. Mm. And watching people think their way through things on stage, I think, is really interesting. Um, it can be boring, but, um, but if it's active and it's, if it's engaged in the fabric of, of, of existence and of life, I think it can be great. So, um, I, I, you know, like I said, the, my time in college was, was spent more grappling with, you know, 
happenings. Like we, we actually did happenings. You know, those things that you read about in those Martin Esslin books that nobody reads anymore. But, but, but you know, they like like happenings where these where these places were like you know, you'd convince fifty of your friends to just kind of show up in makeup with some songs and readings and do do, do something. You know. Um, so so we did some of that, and I I was a me and my friend founded this thing called the the Boston Poetry Laboratory. Um, <laughs> we did some of the craziest stuff ever, but um, that was my introduction to theater. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, my this friend of mine and I wrote this um, kind of a, an epic poem about America, and we set it to music, and we started to perform it at these coffee houses. And there were coffee houses, not cafes. There were coffee houses, you know. Let's go to the coffee house. Um, so, uh, but we did it. It became popular. We did it so often that we memorized it. Mm. And one, at one point, I said to him, "So you know, we don't need scripts. We actually know this thing." And so I kind of stumbled into performing that that way. And um, he recently sent me a videotape of that, and it can never be seen by any human beings. <laughs> it is so bad. I mean, it is so bad. My kids have seen it. Um, and Yorma, who's, who's my son, who's a, who's, a, who's a film guy, is threatening to release it as, a, as an <laughs> SNL digital short. <laughs> completely out me as a horrible artist. But anyway, um, uh, we, we stumbled into, into, into acting that way. And then I went on to the University of Colorado um, just because my wife at the time was going to school there. And she had, had to finish up. So I said, I'll go there, too. And I, I got a... A master's degree at, at there in um, in acting. I met uh, though some people there who were incredible. There was a guy, a guy named Niels Anderson there from the from the National Theater of Denmark, who was trained in um, Krakowski. Mm. And so we did a year long, you know, workshop. These, you know, we knew nothing, but he was really great at. at it was like an outward bound class. It's like pushing you past your physical limitations and kind of forcing you to do things that you never could conceive of doing. And just that alone was this sort of um, uh, seminal experience in terms of like seeing, oh, the mind is its own construct, you know, and the body has its own will. And if you can push past that, um, so <laughs> became a tenant of my work with actors. You can do that. You know, <laughs> you don't think you can, but you can do that. Um, so the the spirit of that class that he was able to engender, which is a spirit of safety, because you have to be to really change. I think you've got to be the, either forced to in, in a, um, a traumatic sense, or invited to, and, and feel safe enough to be able to actually go to a place that you never thought you could go. So mm-hmm. the, those were some of my early things, and then I I um, I got out, and then I went to graduate school at. at uh, Berkeley, mm-hmm. I was uh, I got a, a fellowship offer because I was wanted a family because I thought well I, how am I going to make a living? Um, I thought well I'll become a professor, and I got a offer to go to Cal um, on a, on a free ride, and so I took it. And within like two months of being in school in this PhD program, I figured there's no way I'm going to be a professor. There's just no way. I mean, it was just too boring for me. I just, I have the nervous system of like a gnat, you know. So um, I just, I, and, and the university just felt like a, like a glacier, mm-hmm. you know, like a really 
an interesting um, uh, 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 a glacier, but not not something that I felt would really appeal to me, you know, long term. But I was getting a free ride, and I got uh, essentially a fellowship to sort of read every play ever written, mm. which was fantastic. And I got to to um, you know enter into the rehearsal hall as a director, which I'd never done before. So I, I was there for about four or five years, and then. Um, you know, I did the classic thing. I, I went to the whole program. I passed my written, I passed my orals, and I never finished my dissertation because <laughs> I got a job at this place called the Berkeley Stage Company, um, which was a little theater um, in town run by really cool people, really smart company, um, just a lot of talent there. And and um, I was hired to be the general manager and to be the associate director. You know. <laughs> it's insane. I mean, it's absolutely impossible. And it was one of these situations where within like two weeks I realized, I'm never going to do this. It's impossible. But I stayed there for a year. as a, And actually, to be honest with you, that was probably the best training I could have ever had to become um, an artistic uh, a director. And why is that? Because, because there's nothing quite like the feeling of looking into a checkbook with no money there and trying to figure out how we're going to pay the actors mm. this week. Just in terms of engendering empathy and sympathy for people who have to do that, mm. you know, when it's easy to, 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 to be an art, you know, where's the money? Raise the money. Go do that. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, go blow yourself. I mean, it, 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 I mean it, it's like being... It, it taught me a lot, how to res- a, lo- a lot of respect for management and what those people have to do and how they have to do it, and um, and it. So I think for me it became a, a kind of a touchstone of, of respect um, for that aspect of the work, and and it also let me um, let anybody who I work with in the future. Um, in that job, um, do their job. Mm. So, um, I, but I didn't last long as a manager. I did that for about a year, and then um, a friend of mine named Richard E. T. White was uh, had dropped out of the program at Cal, which many people did, um, to go to this place called the Eureka Theater in San Francisco. Right. And um, the Eureka was a 99 seat theater in the basement of a church in the Castro, which is an area of San Francisco, and. Um, and it was, uh, and the previous artistic director was 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 Robert Woodruff, who um, had been there for like a few years, and he, and you know, Woody was just like banging out weird Sam Shepard stuff in the basement of this church, and um, but doing a really kind of cool job. No management. I mean, when he, when, you know, it was a volunteer organization, and it was just a bunch of scrappy kids. And Richard went over there, and um, he took over when Woodruff left and invited me to come over there um, as a director. And so I did. I went over there. And then three years after that, um, he actually tried to form a company. The whole system was like a, like a faux Maoist setup. It was like taking this group of people and saying, we're going to become a company. And anybody who's ever worked here, done, done anything, has the same voting power as anybody else. If you'd done one show at the Eureka, you had the same amount of power as somebody who'd done 18 shows there. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah. It was fun and crazy, uh, but it, it was not well run. Um, and so 
And then Richard tried to organize it. He tried to actually form a company, and in doing so, a lot of people rightly sensed that they were going to get fired. That it was his way to go, like, I love you, but I really don't know what I don't want to work with, you know, the vast majority of you. So um, uh, there was a riot, there was a coup, mm-hmm. there was a, there was a revolt, <laughs> there was a revolt at the theater. Um, enter Oscar Eustace. He's always like the Cardinal Richelieu, you know. <laughs> it's like you know, Oscar. He now smokes cigars, which I find fantastically. Revelatory, um, <laughs> um, but um, Oscar came in and we b- became friends. And and, um, and uh, Oscar's plan was to have uh, you know was to was to have me take over the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't want it himself, I guess. He didn't have the credibility then. He was too. Oh. He was too. He was twelve or something, you know. I, I, <laughs> and I was eighteen, so I, I had the adult stature in the group. Um, but um, we actually, um, uh, I actually applied. I mean, the one thing that these that these warring factions at, at the theater didn't realize at the time was, was that the theater actually had a board that mm. actually had the power to hire and fire people. So they thought it was going to be this rubber stamp thing. And it wasn't. There was actually an interview process, and I got the job. And the day after I got the job, like, 80% of the theater quit. Mm. Just like, I'm out. Because I sort of, you know, um, voiced the idea that, that I wanted to have the theater become a professional organization. Mm. I wanted to take it from, you know, it's all volunteer um, status at the time. And, and I, I think the budget at the time was like $45,000 for the year. And that that uh, doesn't buy a lot, mm. um, even even back in the days, you know, where everybody was working for free. And how many shows were you producing? Oh, six, you know, the usual oh thing. Yeah, we were just yeah, doing yeah. it. It was like, yeah. you know, costumes. Your mother has a coat. Let's get her coat. <laughs> you know, that it was that kind of thing. But 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 I have to say, some of the work that was done was phenomenal. Yeah, it was, it was the talent. energy of it was yeah. incredible. So um, so anyway, um, the. Then I went about, so I, I hired a general manager. Have, have you asked me any questions? Am I supposed to be doing that? <laughs> no, I, I heard you could And talk. so then, the donkey appeared to me, and I entered Jerusalem with bombs. <laughs> Jesus. Right. Um, anyway, um, so... Um, <laughs> um, uh, what, what here you really kind of brought many of you to, to certainly West Coast prominence. I mean, you were working with playwrights. You were in, you were introducing. It, it didn't start that way. Okay. The, the Eureka started out with you know me and Oscar and at the time Richard. We were doing like basically uh, the best of um, the best of English theater. The best of new English theater. We, we, we would how our our play selection went. We'd buy Plays and Players magazine, which was from England, and we'd read. Oh look, Carol Churchill has a new play. Oh look, David Edgar has a new play. Oh look, Trevor Griffiths has a new play. Let's do it. So we were doing like the best of the Brits, and we got kind of turned on by that. But the cool thing was, because Carol and David and and uh, Trevor and those guys had come through the 60s in England mm. they were allies mm. they were into working in, with us they came over 
they came over and they, and they work with us. I mean, Carol, Carol worked with us on, on Cloud Nine. She worked with us on Light, and, Light and Buckinghamshire. She worked with us on... I mean, she worked with us. Mm. And David Edgar came over and we did Mary Barnes and we did, um, the, the, you know, Albie Sachs. And we did, we did a bunch of... Sh- we did these... And they came and they worked with us, which was thrilling. And then what happened was, after... Um, well, af- after the theater was burned down to the ground by a, um, by an arsonist who um, was out to get us because we were staging the Jail Diary of Albie Sachs, which is a play about a real guy named Albie Sachs, who some of you I'm sure know of, who was a Jewish communist anti-apartheid lawyer um, who was about to do a speaking tour of the United States. Um, these vigilantes called us up and they said, well, you don't know us, but we're going to get you. And we were like, dude. We can't even get people to come to the theater. We were like, Blow us up. Are you kidding me? We were like, crank call, whatever. These people came to the first a preview of the show. They hid in the back of the stage, which is really easy to do. We had no, there was no security. There was none of this like lockup thing. It's like, yeah, somebody will lock. And they wired the place up and they blew it up. And it was an, it was a, it was a professional job. And they blew us up which is the greatest compliment anybody has ever paid me. Uh-huh. I'm serious. I was like, are you, you know, all the questions about is theater meaningful? You know, does anybody care? Public utterance matters. And this was like astonishing. And um, it was also the greatest advertisement in the world because, you know, we were on the nightly news for two weeks. We'd never raised any money in our life. And suddenly we had this outpouring of support from the community, and it was just an, an amazing thing. And we managed to survive. We, we, we went for a year, and we staged our, our, for, for a season at the, at the, at the Magic Theater, um, which was at the time, you know, located in, you know, like a uh, section of town. But, but did they reach out to you? or did? Yeah, I, I, everybody did. It was really, really cool. Because the Eureka was a theater with a reputation, but with no money. Mm. So suddenly there was this idea that we were an invaluable part of the of the cultural landscape, <laughs> which was like, okay, great. Um, so, but we did manage to, to generate a different kind of support, a different kind of recognition, um, um, and 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 exploit that. We exploited it. We, we 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 used it to sort of put into place actually a fundraising campaign for the first time in the, in the theater's history. So, but. Be that as it may, we were still doing that kind of work. We were still doing the best of the Brits, and we, and then, uh, uh, shortly thereafter, we were in rehearsal for a play called *Mad World, My Masters*, and somebody cut, came in, rushed into the theater, and said, "Somebody just shot George Moscone and Harvey Milk." And Barry Keefe, who was the writer of *A Mad World, My Masters*, was was with us that 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 night. And we did the whole thing. We went out to the streets. We joined the candlelight vigil. The whole deal. It was a, it was a, a seminal moment in the history of San Francisco. And um, we stayed up very late into the night. And Barry Keefe said to us at the end of the night, he said, "You know, if this happened in England, there'd be five plays about this in the West End in six months." And Oscar and I looked at each other and went, "We got to do something about this." And so we literally that m- night we set about the task of trying to do a play about it. And three years later, it became Execution of Justice, mm. where we, we spent two years interviewing, like, 100 people 
who had been seminally involved. Because obviously what happened was, was, as you all know, Dan White was the, was the assassin, and then Dan White was essentially exonerated in a, in, in a manslaughter uh, verdict, which created chaos in the city and, and was the cause of the, uh, of the White Knight riots. And, and it, but what it is was that the incident revealed the fact that there was a war going on in San Francisco for San Francisco. That the city was polarized into, into pretty much distinct warring camps. Those on the right who were made up of, of the sort of old school unions and those on, on the left who were made up of um, an emerging an emergingly and increasingly vocal gay population which was obviously spearheaded and, and, and um, most manifestly expressed by Harvey Milk. And George Moscone was was the um, was the guy who was the first politician who introduced um, legislation which was pro-gay in the state of California. And and his increasingly powerful alliance with Harvey, you know, was was the unconscious expression of Dan White's fury. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, um, we did a play about it, and and uh, it, but it began our commitment to new American writers, and we thought, and once we were in those waters, we stayed in them. We we started going. You know what, Carol and David and those guys, what they're doing is they're they're voicing their own dialogue about English politics and about English history, and we want to do the same if we can, you know, like about American politics and American history. And so it began a, a longer um, career arc. Well, and then, and then you went on. I mean, now you're doing New American Playwrights at Eureka, and you went on a few years later to, um, to you and Oscar discovered what I, I, I read a quote that you said about this. You discovered, quote, some kid in a Soho loft who was writing a weird-ass Marxist play. Yeah. And that was Angels in America. It was. Um, we re- I literally like like dispatched Oscar and like go find Tony Kushner, and, <laughs> <laughs> and he did. He found him in a little a little loft working with his company, which was at the time um, Spinello, um, Stephen Spinello was the only um, person in the company who actually <laughs> stayed in theater. But but he was there working on um, his first play, uh, which has never been done. Um, Called Heavenly Theater, and um, but Oscar came back from that trip um, with a play tucked under his arms, and he said, "I want you to read this tonight." He literally got off the plane and said, "I want you to read this tonight." And I, I was notorious for not doing that. A stack of plays next to my bed that was gathering moss, and but I promised him I wouldn't. I did, and um, I, I, I said to him, "I said this is the best play I've read in ten years." And what was it that you saw in that play then? Well, the play was a bright room called Day, and and um, it was the it was a what I saw then is what I see now. The particular combination of Tony's talents, um, which is um, his ability overall, his ability to inter- to integrate um, different phenomena, to see the interrelationships of of how things work in a way that I thought was breathtakingly huge and astonishingly insightful. I mean, obviously, 
you know, to say he's a political writer is, is um, doesn't capture the, the, the spirit of, of and the rigor, the rigor of his intelligence, the ferocity of his passion. And he's funny as hell. He, he's funny. He, the man likes a gag. He's a rubber chicken guy. I'm telling you, he's like, and this is the great secret about this guy. I've, I've said about him, I've said, you know, Tony Kushner for me is like a rabbi who's trying to write the perfect vaudeville sketch about the state of the world, which is falling apart. I mean, I, he, he manages to do, bring that, all that sensibility, and plus his poetics, you know, obviously his language, everybody says language, 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 and yes, but the, the, it's the, it's the, intelligence and the heart behind the language, the yearning. I feel like every single play of his is describing an immensely fragile, fragile universe, you know, and every tendril of, of the universe is made manifest because he, and he lets you feel it and, and as well as see it. And I think it's, it's astonishing. He's like my favorite writer. Um, and it's just because he gets to me. You know, you all, you know, you, you guys have this. You, you, Somebody out there for you is like the person who you open the page, you go, <laughs> you know, you got, you lift. Something happens. And I think for me, in a physical way, I kind of respond to the work. Um, so um, he was fortunately unknown at the time. And so when we brought him out uh, to, you know, to San Francisco, he was like a kid in a candy store. He'd never had any of his work done. And we did uh, a bright room called called A, and um, and it was thrilling. And based on that, we hired him to write his next play, which was going to be a ninety-minute chamber piece with three people in it. <laughs> it going to be all he said was, "All I know is, is there's Roy Cohn is in it, and there's two Mormons, and it's going to be ninety minutes." We're like, <laughs> I'm going to go see Angels uh, this week, and it's, it's I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't you know seen it since I worked on it. Wow. So it's going to be really a, a, a fun thing to see. We're actually thinking about doing it at uh, Berkeley. Me and Les might do the whole thing next year. So, But I, I haven't seen it in a really long time. And Michael Reif's a good friend of mine. And, and um, we, we, The people who've worked on Tony Shows have become like members of AA. <laughs> you know, we like agree to meet under the Eiffel Tower every year. Just to, <laughs> Are you still tattooed? Yes, I'm still tattooed. Um, because it's a, sort of a, a, like, a, like a survivor's club. But you did Brindabar with him as well. I mean, I've done a lot of things to with Tony. With him. I've done yeah. a lot of things with yeah. Tony. I mean, the thing is, my thing about um, deciding who I'm going to work with, I just gravitated towards people who are astonishingly talented. Mm. I like everybody here. I mean, I just think, for me, you know, you hear all these stories, so-and-so is impossible, you know, to work with. And, and there are people who, obviously, you feel like, I can't work with that person. It's just not happening. But for me, you know, people say, well, how did you get hooked up with Sarah Jones and how did you get hooked up with Danny Hopkins? I just think they can do things that are really, really rare. And they take my breath away. You just go, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the Bridge and Tunnel, but I know we're skipping around here, but, you know, the, um, Bridge and Tunnel, um, we were supposed to do, we were supposed to do... Sarah had done this piece called Surface Transit, mm -hmm. which we had done at Berkeley Rep, and she wanted to bring back into New York. And we had this idea that she was going to rework it. So because she had done a workshop of it, she was worried that, that you know, it wasn't going to be new enough to get re-reviewed because, because it was a workshop that had been seen. Mm -hmm. So we were going to add other characters in it. So 
she was supposed to write this thing months and months in advance, and she didn't do it. So we had this little window of time right before rehearsal started where she was going to add these other characters. So she, the night before rehearsal starts, I'm supposed to fly to New York. She calls me and she says, are you sitting down? I said, I never sit when I hear things like that. And she said, I, I, it, it doesn't work. The idea of jamming new characters into this old format doesn't work. And I, it made perfect sense as soon as she said it. But, but now it's the night before rehearsal starts. So I said, well, what do you want to do? And she said, well, I... I have these other, these three other characters, and I said, "Well, do them. We're on the phone." I said, "Do them." So she starts doing them, and I said, "Good. We'll we'll build something around that." She said, "You don't have to come." I said, "I'm coming." And she said, "Why? Because I said because it's you." <laughs> so we we went, and 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 we in about four weeks we just created this piece. Mm. She had like three characters, and we her and me and Steve Coleman. We just jammed on these other things, and we, and I said, "Well, the, the, the producer is sitting, going, and the set will be." <laughs> I said, "The set's going to be the theater, and we're going to, we're going to, we we had come up with a conceit pretty quickly that it would be a, a club, and I was going to, I just hired like a graffiti artist to come in and just just paint the fucking thing and make it, you know, an environment, um, but." Why am I attracted to certain people? Because I just can't resist them. Mm. I just feel like there's a talent, there's a singular talent there. There's a voice that that is screaming to be heard. And we should mention Sarah went on to win a special that that yeah, she won a Tony Award. Broadway, yeah, yeah, she yeah. won a special yeah. Tony Award actually yeah. for her performance. Yeah, it was uh, the she's an astonishing talent mm. person, and Danny Hawk the same thing. I mean, that's that's why my. My, I have this, you know, now I'm like the solo artist guy, which is a um, fear of mine that my tombstone will say just that. Um, the solo art, uh, you know, wanted to do Coriolanus. Um, um, uh, I have done Coriolanus. Anyway, um, uh, but anyway, um, but I, 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 um, I, I do feel there are some performers that I just feel so irresistibly drawn to that and I feel that way about but you know actors and writers as well so so anyway what um, happens so when you're when you're working with somebody I mean I've, I've read that you um, it sounds like Sarah is one of those people who will work through anything and who's kind of fearless Sarah's amazing um, uh, she um, she's you know, all of our strengths are related to what you might call our weaknesses. And, and Sarah's um, fear, I think, at the beginning of her, of her career of being seen personally fueled her total immersion into her characters. So her ability to transform herself through literally an accent. But it isn't just an accent. I mean, people can do funny accents. Sarah's mimicry is just at another level. Like, she can go into a cab, and when, in 15 minutes, she's doing the Haitian cab driver better than he's doing it. You know, it's like, what is that? And so, but I think it was fueled by her, her not wanting to be seen. She just, and she was really scared in the show of, of, of creating a persona called Sarah Jones that would talk to the audience. So she didn't do it. She's... I think a bit past that now, but but um, but it was you know like all of us we ha- we have our fears sort of 
are folded into our creativity. So it's been it's been interesting to watch her work and um, which is a different skill set than like Danny Hawk has. I mean Danny Hawk um, who is a great performer. He's a great performer. Um, but there's a little bit more of him in there. Uh, of and you never kind of lose Danny entirely, where Sarah is like a transformative act, which I which is the reason I think that Meryl Streep so so vocally embraced Sarah. She anointed Sarah. That's what sort of was one of the reasons why the show was successful on Broadway is because Meryl Streep had endorsed the show and said this is this is the next me, <laughs> um, because I think she saw in Sarah this the the same dynamic. Somebody who could so she disappears, whereas Danny does it, and I think that's one of the strengths of Danny shows because Dan, Dan, Dan and it's no accident that Danny's also shows up as a character in his shows. There's always a piece. There's always one of the monologues. There's always Danny, or the character Danny Hawk, comes out and talks to the audience, and I think that there's there's a different playwriting strategy with that, and there's a different performative intention. I mean, Danny doesn't want to ever let you know completely that he's not there. It's a more, you might call it like a, you know, like a Brechtian strategy where, you know, you're never unaware that the performer is telling you a story and, and that he has the license and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the right to do so. So one might say that that enables you to think through the piece a little more actively than maybe a piece like Sarah's where you're so letting yourself go into her characters that, that you know, you're swept up in, in, in that event and in the astonishment of that event as opposed to, you know, Danny who's trying to tell you, they're screwing us, can't you people see? <laughs> you know, which, is, which, which is Danny's thing, which I, which I love him for. How do you seem to so easily adapt your, adapt your directing ability or techniques or whatever it is to, to such different artists? I don't or have that much any. talent. <laughs> um, no, I, um, I guess, you know... Or how do you approach it differently? Well, I do think that... Um, I, I, I think that's a, it's a kind of very personal thing. I mean, I, to be honest with you, to answer the question, I have to sort of... Um, I feel like, you know, when you're in a really big family... That's really loud. Um, you spend a lot of time <laughs> watching everybody else um, and um, trying to go with the flow, as opposed to feel like um, you're the center of everything. So, I mean, I have just as much, uh, you know, like a lack like of an ego as anybody else. But, but I feel like um, I. Uh, I was able to watch a lot. Plus, um, when I was a kid, I had a massive um, impediment, a speech impediment. Massive. I couldn't talk. So I spent a lot of time watching other people talk. And I think that that really influenced me a lot. Probably more so than any other single thing in terms of my work. In what sense? Well, you know, well, one thing is that when you stutter, you're brain is moving twice as fast as a normal human being because you've got a thesaurus up there <laughs> so as you're speaking if you think you're going to stammer on a word you're filing through 
the, the dictionary, the, you know, the thesaurus, mm. to try to find a word that you think you're not going to stutter on. So your brain is like that. <laughs> and the other thing is, you know, you don't want, the one thing you don't want to do is talk in public. So, but you're interested in other people talking in public. So that's the real answer to your question. Mm-hmm. Um, the other answer is, you know, um, I've always been interested in, like, different events. Like, uh, I, I came to directing um, in the service of the text. And when you work with a lot of new work, your job, your job is to service the text. You know, I don't, I don't believe that my job, is, I, mean, the, I mean, the first time out, an author's just sitting there going, what do I got? Like, what, what have I done? And you're trying, to, you're trying to let that person see what they've done. And um, I have never felt that more than more recently when I've become a, a bit of a writer. You know, when you're just, you're just, you're, you're in these workshops or you're in this rehearsal and you're just trying to listen and hear what you've actually created and does it work? If somebody's out there doing, I have an idea that we're going to do this naked in Swedish and you're like, fuck. I mean, I, I don't know what I've done. You know, so, and I think that that's, that became a kind of defining style both at the Eureka and at Berkeley Rep with new work. Um, it became clear to me pretty early on that a lot of writers were suffering from having to, um, because you want to please people in a real way, but also in a fake way, <laughs> because you want to keep working, because you want this theater to do your work, you're dealing with notes that may uh, take you away from your intention. And so we became, I think, uh, sensitive and eventually pretty skilled at letting people write the play they wanted to write. And I think, um, I think it's a skill set. Mm. And what, what, what could somebody take away? Like, what could you share with somebody that could actively help them in doing that as a director or as an artistic director? Well, I think, you know, I mean... I think you have to be very judicious. There, there, there's no set of rules here right. because everyone's uh, like different. Every writer's different. They're real, they're, damn it, <laughs> they're different. <laughs> I mean, they, they don't need the same things. I mean, they all want one thing which is the same. They want their play done. That's what playwrights want. What do playwrights want? They want the play done. <laughs> End of conversation. But if you... if if that's part of the currency of the conversation, we're going to do the play. It's a totally different conversation. And I, but I do think that the um, when to say what is a pretty big deal. When somebody can hear something, setting up ground rules of respect that are largely intuitive, but people know them immediately. Um, when, you know, uh, well, so one thing we do, it's a, something we do. We don't, well, we have a staff. We have an artistic staff. You know, it's made up of great people. Les Waters, Madeline Oldham, Amy Potoskin. Um, 
We all watch. One person give notes. Mm-hmm. We we collate our notes. We don't. We have one person who do it. We don't have five people with the unless the unless the playwright wants it. The playwright says, "Can I get? Can I meet with everybody?" And the playwright gets to kind of control uh, um, the the amount of information going into the funnel. It's like a player has a funnel, you know, these workshops. It's like sticking a funnel in somebody's head and everybody just drops stuff in. You know, you want that funnel to not become a colander. (laughs) You know, we're like, yes, let the waters rain, whatever you people say, you know, nodding. Because, um, but anyway, there's a, there's a, I think there's a science to, it's an inexact science, but it is a science, I think, to um, note giving and note taking. Because it's about, hearing, digesting. The one thing that, that the writing thing has done for me is it's made me completely aware that the digestion process of a director is totally different than the, the digestion process of a writer. In what way? Okay, so as a director, I, I have to say that I, I fully now regret 30 to 40% of the way I said things to writers in the past. Uh, but the other 70% were great. Um, uh, <laughs> No, um, it's because I, so a director uh, is um, hired to have a worldview, an aesthetic viewpoint, and opinions. Strong, bold, courageous opinions that interpret the text in a way that is singular and dynamic and entertaining and vivacious, right? Just bring it on. And a director reads the play and goes, that second scene blows. Dude, you got it. What's up? You know, I mean, I'm a little bit more sensitive than that. But, but you know, you can say to somebody, look, the second scene isn't working. It's in the way, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and be completely right. Right, 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 right. And the writer's sitting there and going, okay, I agree. So what? Because the writer, all the writer can, can really experience is the amount of things that are in that second scene that are critical to the entire structure of the event. So the writer's brain is he's he or she is the file is active, the computer is racing to try to figure out the little note that you said, and it, it can be a little note, you know. Why does she have to go to the kitchen? Why does she have to, you know? And and suddenly the whole play is unfolding. It's unraveling. It's like you're taking a string and just the sweater is coming undone. And you're but the writer, of course, they want they they don't want to freak out, so they're like nodding. <laughs> I'll think about that, <laughs> you know. And, but meanwhile, what you're trying to do is to process how does that particular note affect everything? Because what you've created as a writer, you've created a world with a kind of very particular interstitial logic. It, it doesn't mean that the play's logical or that it, or, or that the motor isn't isn't um, poetic or linear or whatever. It just means that there's a, there's a logic in place and that what a note is is like, I don't think you're, you know, your system's breaking down there. Now, if you're, if, you're, if you're aware of what the writer's trying to do, you're more understanding of that. And so, not that you wouldn't give the note, but the way you give the note is different. You'd say, you know, I realize that this affects this and this, but I think the payoff of this you know, is worth it to think about 
making you know a change here. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a different spectrum of understanding of, of maybe what the task is. It isn't to say that directors aren't entitled, you know, to give notes or to to express them. I mean, that's what you want. But you know, I, I think it's why we all tend to work with people we trust and like again and again because you know there's a system that you guys develop over time where it feels like you understand what the logic of somebody's trying to do is. So um, so I, I do think we, there's things that we do. Um, uh, we're, we're big on um, letting the writer kind of define what the workshop structure is going to be. Um, not entirely, but certainly... You know, some people need and want more things at various times. We're, you know, I think that, so all that stuff. How do you match or do you match a director with a project? Or is that purely the playwright? Um, no, we, we, we're, we're pretty aggressive with um, coming up with ideas about that. Um, you know, obviously with uh, an experienced writer, it's a different question than somebody who's less experienced who may be, may be really excited about the different possibilities. I mean, sometimes a writer will come to us who's been working with so-and-so since high school and wants to make a break and wants us to make the break. Mm. So it's, it's a good, it's a good <laughs> fork in the road, you know. We get to say, we're big bad bullies. and You know, it, it's, you try to do that with a lot of sensitivity because, you know, you, you don't want to, you know, nobody wants to be unkind or... Um, insensitive, but sometimes there's that. Sometimes we've had the experience where somebody's excited to just think in a totally new way about um, their work and who might work on a, a show with them. Um, or somebody comes saying, I need Annie Kaufman to work on my play, or I need Les Waters, or I need, you know, Lisa Peterson, or, you know. So people come to us with ideas and. Um, I, I think the thing that we try to do, and I think it's it's pretty, uh, I think it's it's pretty uh, fair to say that I think Berkeley Rep is artist driven. Mm. It's an artist driven um, institution, and that the management is there to happily support that. And I do think the other part about that is that we put together a staff that's driven by process, like. Um, that is pretty fucking cool. I mean, the staff at Berkeley Rep is up for it. Mm. And we, if you're not up for it, you don't work there. You just don't. You just, it's about, and it's about trying to exchange, extend the, the, the process, the creative part of the process as long as you possibly can in rehearsal. Um, of course, one of the, one of the, um, Severe compromises we face that we're trying to figure out a way to get it to expand is the, you know, the, the the regional theater is a bit of a cookie cutter. You know, we become we're institutions. We create six products a year, seven products a year, ten products a year, and they have dates. It's finite. And so, you know, whatever you say about workshops and explorations and this and that, you got four and a half weeks to rehearsal. You got five and a half weeks to tech, and you've got, you know, five. Uh, shows before an audience then you open mm. and that's good for a lot of things and not good for other things so how we can how we can host a process like elevator repair service 
or pig iron or tectonic or you know mabu mines you know <clears throat> we're trying to actually right now we're in the process we just bought um, 60,000 square foot piece of property um, which is going to change the nature of who we are I mean we have a, a two working theaters now in a school but we're, we're going to have um, we're going to have a place that we can build a center for writing and I think we're going to do that and that does that does that leave the director out somehow? I mean, the Center for Writing is fabulous. You know, the, is she I the know. One, I, uh, one, <laughs> one theme. <laughs> does that leave us out? <laughs> no, Ellen. It does not leave you out. I'm just putting the thought in your head. Yeah. That's all. Um, <laughs> I no, actually, we um, you know, Berkeley Rep's been a director-driven institution yeah. for. I mean, I think, frankly. Um, when historians write about this period, um, I think the last 20 years is going to go down as the era of the director. The director is the person who bears the brunt of the interpretive responsibility of the text right now entirely. The director is the person who people go, oh my God, the director. And the culture, what does the culture do? The, the, the culture has done nothing but celebrate the individual cult of the director. And if you're not an auteur, you're, something's wrong. I mean, the the... The celebration of the individual imagination. Individual, not collective. Bad word. Socialist. <laughs> communist. Horrible. You know, metaphysically untrue. Um, that's, no, we want the director. The genius. The auteur, the visionary. The person who's going to take all this and make it theirs. You know, I mean, uh, talk to the writer about that. <laughs> you know, I'm working with this genius who's screwing my play up. I mean, I mean, it, it's 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 complicated because what what you want, of course, in the theater, why we do it is because it has the possibility of transcendence. There's the possibility of transcending your own ego. It's why we do it. It's tribal. It's it's collectivized. It's 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 making a community. Every single time, and, and where, where you where you submit, you submit, you willfully submit, you know, to the greater event. I mean, that's the definition of the damn thing, you know. Um, uh, so, which is why I actually have a you know a slight antipathy towards solo work, ironically, mm. because it is in some ways a kind of you know further enhancement of of, of the cult of celebrity, you know, which has been. Coincidentally, a phenomena that has matched the you know the rise of the Republican Party and of the ascendancy of the, a different, an entirely different set of priorities, ethically, politically, socially, and morally, mm. about who we are as people and how we should function as a culture. That's it, you know. And so I'm writing a solo show. <laughs> <laughs> You are actually. There. I am. I'm writing a solo yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. A solo for, show for, Rita, for Rita Moreno. Yeah. Yeah. For Rita Moreno. Um, and let's talk about that. How is it going to be as a playwright to you know not only on the Rita Moreno show but on on Ghostlight? David Galligan is directing the Rita Moreno show, and Jonathan Moscone is directing Ghostlight. And how will that be having a director direct your work? It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's. I, I made the decision myself, obviously, because everybody says. A lot of my friends just assume, well, you're going to direct it, right? And I said, no. 
And I feel like that's really a really smart decision on my part because I, f I don't want to start fixing my own problems. You know, as a director, you're there to keep it going, moving right along. They won't notice that part. <laughs> you know, we need an ending. We don't have an ending. We need, I want a waterfall. I've done that. I've done that. Worked like a charm. I don't want to be the writer of that play. You know, the director's going, need a waterfall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah. so I want to be able to, as long as I can, sit in the, in the room and just, you know, that isn't working. That needs to be, you know, I want to be able to sit there with the luxury and the terror of just going, that's not their problem. I have to fix that or I have to work on that. Or that, that can be better. That doesn't sound right. That's rhythmically wrong. There's, there, there's a melody I haven't captured. There's an intention that isn't clear. There's a, or I don't want that to be clear consciously. The, 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 the two plays I'm writing are almost opposite. One is a, a life story about Rita Moreno. It's called Life Without Makeup. And it's really a kind of a, like a biopic. It's the story of her life. But it's, I'm trying to make it as interesting as possible. I'm, I'm feeling entitled to write it because my mother actually... Um, has a very similar um, life history to Rita. Mm. She's a, a Puerto Rican woman who's only three years older than Rita and, and has shared very similar background. I grew up speaking Spanish and the whole deal. So I feel pretty close to Rita's story and Rita's become a friend and nobody else wanted to do it. So, um, uh, and, but I started doing it and, and I actually took that job. Uh, I, I took on that job and take that job at my theater. <laughs> um, but I, I took on that job after I had been involved with the Ghostlight thing for a while. And Ghostlight's a... Talk about violating every single rule in the book. I mean, I, I had... Obviously, my early career as a poet had not catapulted me into poetry fame. So... I, uh, but I had always had a flirtation and a romance with writing. I, I just loved the idea of doing it. And I loved the idea of seeing myself in restaurants introducing myself as a writer to people. I just <laughs> loved that. I thought, that is the coolest thing. And then I got sick of flirting with myself about it. I just got sick. I was like, fuck you. Just, do you want to be a writer? Write something. So I actually spent a year by myself writing a, a, a book of short stories, mm. um, mostly in the, in the David Sedaris mode of things, because I like funny. And um, so I wrote a book of short stories, half of which are about my family growing up, and the other half are about theater uh, you know, various people in the theater. Um, so um, I did that, and I did it unbeknownst to anybody. I just did it. Um, and I spent a year doing it, and I, I wrote a book. And it was really fun. I really liked it. I liked, I liked being with myself in a certain way. I liked the solitude of it. I liked the creativity of it. I liked the, I liked the lack of... I like the responsibility. I like the. I like the, the main lining. It's like, you know, it's just you and the page, you know, and I, li I like that a lot. And so, I thought that was fun. And then, I'm in a bar with John Moscone, who's a, a friend and a colleague. But you have to understand, John Moscone, is a, younger guy than me by a lot, and. And um, I knew John. John was an intern at Berkeley Rep. He was my assistant on uh, 
the Virgin Molly way back in the day before he went to Yale and all this stuff. He was a kid. And I've known him, and, I, and certainly because we had done Execution of Justice, I knew a lot about his family history. And I also knew he never wanted to talk about his father ever, and he never wanted to traffic in any of the, of the currency of the, of, the, of the events surrounding his father's death. You know, no, no, no. We're in a bar. He's getting me drunk, which is very easy to do. He can drink. I can't. So I'm nursing this my second vodka cranberry, and he's pounding these fucking martinis. And, and he says to me, I want to do a piece about my dad. And I was like, oh. And I said, I don't want to do a biopic. I want to do a dream play. I want to do a father-son play in the spirit of Robert Lepage. And, you know, Robert Lepage is like a genius. So, like, he, I mean, his sense of imagery and, and just amazing. So we sh- so I said, well, why? Why do you want to do it? So he started telling me stuff. And the first thing out of his mouth is, I'm 14 years old when my father dies, and I'm in therapy for being afraid that my father's going to be killed when my father's killed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a conversation stopper. Mm-hmm. So I was like, wow. And then he kept talking. And um, to make a long story short, I, I mean, I walked out of the bar thinking, that was incredible. Why? I said, why are you talking to me? He said, because I trust you with my story. I'm like, oh, okay. He said, let's make a piece of it. I was like, make a piece. We go into a room with actors, you know, walking through honey exercises. What? what, what you know, <laughs> what? And now a man comes in with a gun. What, 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 what are we going to, what are you talking about? So fortunately we were getting really drunk and I staggered out of there thinking nothing's going to happen. You know, it's done. Fine. We start meeting about this, and it's kind of like therapy. He comes over to my house, and he s- sits on the couch, and I sit in a chair, and, and I have my laptop, and I say, and I ask him stuff. And he starts channeling, channeling stuff, just everything from just stuff. So I have this body material, and then he sell, calls me up another month and says, Oregon Shakespeare Festival is interested in offering us a commission. I said, for what? <laughs> for what? They're, they're all insane now. And I have these people saying, we're going to like make you write a play. And we, and it's not clear. I'm not supposed to write this thing. There's nothing, no discussion about that. We're just going to, again, it's just this amorphous thing. So, but I'm in Montreal about six months after all this starts. And I'm in Montreal with Danny Hawk on a solo show tour. And uh, um, why I'm there. I just, I just want to go to Montreal, basically. And um, hang out with Danny. So... We're there, and I start looking at the notes, and I start writing scenes. And then I have this idea. Suddenly, as I'm writing the scenes, a structure sort of shows up in my head. And I think of this three-part structure. One, I see this 14-year-old boy who's guarding his father's coffin. And then I see this guy named John Moscone, who's a theater uh, director who's trying to direct Hamlet, and he can't figure out how to do the ghost scene. And he starts obsessing about the ghost. And then I see what's happening in that guy's dream life. And that what's happening in his, in his unconscious starts marching into his consciousness and crashes through. And uh, I write some stuff, and I call up John and say, John, 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 I think I've, I've actually got some stuff that we might be able to work on. He says, great, send me this stuff. <laughs> no answer. And I become a playwright. I'm freaked out. <laughs> I go from terror 
no answer the next day to fury to the next day depression (laughs) to the next day I don't care (laughs) I am a playwright and and I'm telling you I've never felt that as a director like ah change scene (laughs) two to a playwright the level of vulnerability I feel is astonishingly different really high and and I, I wait two weeks no answer I get back home and say John call me god damn it and he calls me and says I'm terrified to open it it's we've moved from honeymoon we're gonna do a play about me and dad to this is gonna go public we're gonna actually do something he reads it he reads it and he um, he responds to it it's, it's totally fiction I've taken what he's done. I've taken the story of the boy and made it into my own boy. I've got a whole thing. He mentioned once to me, he said, I had this dream about this guy who just came and said he wanted to offer me a ride home. And he was a black guy. So I make this a storyline in the show. This messenger comes to talk to this boy. And he has a, he has, his task is to, is to remove the boy from his own addiction to his memory. And so it becomes a storyline of the play. And with real scenes. There's five scenes with the messenger and the boy. The boy goes into the coffin at one point. He goes into the underworld. So, I mean, this becomes a thing. And so the play starts to take shape. After six months of writing, I finally say to John, John, you know, I'm actually writing this. You know, I'm actually writing it, and you're not. (laughs) So, and no, it was a real comment because it was like, actually, I was starting to feel bad. I was feeling like, wait a minute. Am I gonna, if I'm going to write this, I, want, I need to be entitled to write it. And so we had this conversation. He said, you're right. You're writing the piece. So I, that's how it developed. And I wrote the play. And, um, and then it, it became clear that John's role in it would have been very frustrating if he, if he was limited to just coming to a couple of rehearsals and <laughs> seeing how it was going. So he said, well, what if I directed? And I said, oh, my God, this is so weird. <laughs> this is like beyond weird, right? So, so, um, but I said, what the hell? You know, it's better than walking through honey exercises. So, <laughs> why don't we just try the workshop thing? So, because we've, we've had like three workshops. And the second workshop, he came. The cast was completely intimidated because they've got John Moscone. Mm-hmm. There and I've, it's, it's for Ashland, and I've, I've worked there a lot. And I've actually wrote three of the eight um, actors. I wrote the parts for, which I loved doing. I mean, I loved hearing them as I was writing the play. I'm sure a lot of you have done it. It's just it's such a liberation, and I loved their their work. And I loved they helped me a lot. Their voices helped me a lot writing the play, and so. Um, they're like my really close associates and friends. And then John Moscone shows up who the play is sort of about, you know? And so they're like, <laughs> but the cool thing is because the part of John Moscone is so not John Moscone, it's really much more me than it is John Moscone. Mm-hmm. He could direct it. He wasn't, there was none of this like, you have to be John Mus- There was right. no, I mean, if it it was more of a biopic, we could have never done it. There's no way. It would just been too weird. But I mean, the audience is going to be really, you know, confused by that. Like, but I don't, I don't care as long as the play works. Mm. 
I don't care about that as long as the play works. I, I, and I think if the play works, it'll be about the loss of your father, mm. about everyone's loss of their father. Right. It's particular, obviously, in John's case, because the loss of a... If, you're, if your father... I mean, his father was, you know, a very public figure and very well-known, and so the particular... Um, suffering that the family has had to endure because um, because their grief is owned by the public in many ways more than it is by their family is different and higher I think well and in his case not only was his father public but his death was public well I mean, he was, well he was, he was well that was exactly I mean there's a, there's a, a sensational yeah. historical event that's attached to that and everyone has a piece of that everyone who lived it, I mean in San Francisco it's like you, it's just like the Kennedy assassination right. you knew where you were the moment you heard you knew where you were when the verdict went down with Dan White it was a it was a very 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 powerful you know series of moments in the history of San Francisco and, and so people I, people's identity is attached to, to that particular moment or, or series of moments in time and so people's ownership over it is much, much higher. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, John has had to grapple with that. And the fact that he was 14 years old when his father died and the particular psychology of, you know, um, him being uh, afraid for his father's death and then having that come true. And then there's a slight, there's another complication that I've, I've enhanced because I'm taking dramatic little, uh, license with it. But John was sick the day his father was shot. And... Um, you know, his dad could have stayed home and taken care of him, mm-hmm. but he went to work instead. Mm-hmm. So I kind of made that a, a main thing. Mm-hmm. So the boy is trying to willfully make himself sick in the course of the play to try to not lose his father. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like you and, you and Jonathan Moscone obviously have a very um, high level of trust between each other, and you seem to have that with a number of people. I mean, more... more <laughs> Not more my so. ex-wife so much, but... <laughs> but you, know, you, you have... You no, actually with her, too. It's kind of good. But it's you've okay. done an extraordinary <laughs> amount. I mean, I don't know of anybody who has done as much co-directing as you have, which you say, you've said in an interview, is, the, is extremely hard, and you do twice as much work, and yet you continue to, <laughs> you yeah. continue to do it. Yeah. Um... Well, I, I, I find the um, there's there's potential richness there. You know, one of the things that my my, my sons are a writer mm. films and stuff, and he works in a in a little company called The Lonely. And that's so little anymore. The Lonely Island. They make the digital shorts for Saturday Night Live, and um, uh, so he writes with with his two friends and and um, I know a number of writers, and certainly in television and film they they write with other partners and I've been thinking about doing that mm. and thinking about well that would be sort of fun hard but if you got the right person or the right group of people I mean why should you know why should I have to think of the plot <laughs> <laughs> when other people can be there to throw it at, I mean, I, you know so, and I, I guess and I've also was again I think um, being weaned in the 60s, mm. you know, where collaboration was was the thing. You know, it was the thing. I mean, at the Eureka, we really, um, there were, I don't want to romanticize the Eureka, you know, past the point of endurance, um, but there were some things about it that were great. 
the, the real sense of family. It was small enough that you could actually feel that. I mean, now I work at a bigger theater, and as much as you know, we try to engender a good vibe, you know, and a, and a real spirit of invitation and involvement, you know, with everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, you get in a room with more than ten people, and it's just it's a different event. And as I told you on the phone the other day, I mean, like a friend of mine once said to me, the bigger the theater, the smaller the meetings. You know, and it's true. Mm. You don't have the huge meetings where everybody, it's just, you know, you get in a room like this and like some people are going to feel comfortable talking, some people are not. Some people are going to want, you know, it's just a different event than seven people in chairs Mm. and we're going to go around. But that kind of model is seemingly coming back. Now I think I mean with civilians and or or similar. Oh, I similar think models. I think there's a feeling of um, there's a lot of things coming back and a lot of things not. I don't know what's uh, you know it's a vast world out there and I I, I do think there's uh, it's a big complicated topic but you know there's the, with the plethora of younger smaller companies that are doing their own marketing via the internet that are sort of taking charge a little bit more in terms of um, wanting to run the show and having to run the show um, I think there's a, both a spirit of empowerment and um, just a little bit more fear about just the scale of what has to happen in terms of getting an actual audience to come and see your stuff mm-hmm. I mean there's a lot of um, I think the internet has um, democratized some things um, it's also diluted some things and it also so, probably exposes some things I mean if you were on if you were on the internet doing your Poem, your spoken word poem about America when you were 18 right. or 19 or 20, that may have limited you. I would have never worked again. Right. <laughs> no, there's no question, really. I mean, you see this video. There's and no you were question. able to develop that in private, real? I mean, I mean, not in private. It was no, public yeah, also, yeah, yeah. but not with this wide exposure. Yeah, you know, I went to this uh, Broken Bells concert the other night, and um, it was just as amazing to me, like, Almost everybody was filming the thing on their cam on their cell phones. It's like I was like, "You're here," <laughs> but they're really they want to. It's different. Yeah. I mean, the statement "I am here" was obviously as equally as important <laughs> as "I am here." Yeah, yeah. It was kind of interesting. Um, so I don't know. There's all kinds of things going on out there. They're, they have to do with interactivity and communication and. Um, uh, generating an audience and what's live and what's not live and you know what's theater going to be and uh, it's it's all pretty interesting. I just want before we we, ha- we have to wrap up, but before we do, I just want to just two minutes on video capture because it is becoming so prevalent. Video capture of live stage work. Right. And what does that mean to you as an artistic director and as a director as well? Well, as a director, I think you know. I sure, sure hope we're using at least three cameras <laughs> because that single shot thing is not working. <laughs> I mean, I do think that theater faces a, a particular challenge with that because I think our stuff looks dead on video. So how we can make it really feel like a theater show without... I, it's hard. No one's figured it out yet. I mean, even you know, Spike did this great uh, version of Passing Strange that he used you know, eight cameras and over like a three-day shoot, and he did a great job. Um, And still, I thought it was like, this is like 20% of the show, of feeling the show. 
I don't know how you do that. I mean, somebody's going to figure it out. There's going to be some sort of 3D audio input. You know, and suddenly you're going to be like, yes, I'm there. You know, it's going to happen. So I don't, I don't think we should ignore that. I think we should kind of check it out. We did do some serious thought thinking about bringing the 3D show to Berkeley up this year. And um, just because I'm interested in, in the technology, I'm not afraid of it. We use a lot of our shows use video, mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but I also think it's passive. It's fundamentally passive. You start, start showing a movie in a theater, and peop- it's a molecular event. People just go, okay, I'm, I'm watching in a different way. I'm, it's a molecular uh, event, and I feel like... Um, Somehow the translation of that event to a to a fully screen realized thing we haven't figured that out. I'm interested in seeing how that can work. I'm not interested in the audience voting on the ending. <laughs> not interested at all in that. I'm not interested in them blogging to me individually about what they thought about the show right after they saw it. Not that kind of guy. Don't want to fucking waste my time. But I think it's important that people feel that they can express themselves now in a different way. I mean, we had this like knockdown drag out fight about food and drink in the theater, mm. you know? And. Which side were you on? Um, I was on the over my dead body, and now it's very much over my dead body. <laughs> no, and now it's like, it's, it's fine. So now we let it happen. Um, I do think there's behavior in the theater. I mean, it's just, it's a different culture. I mean, I think we don't. It's a it's a it's a line. It's a line that's being redefined even as we speak. I mean, my larger issue about all that just has to do with um, fracture of focus. It's so funny because when I was younger, you know, like every scene ended with a blackout. Remember back in the day? For those of you who are my age. Um, you know, we do. You do a you know, the twenty-eight epic scene thing, blackout, blackout, blackout. You know, and then it was like blackout. Blackouts are horrible. Crossover, and now it's like how many different lines of focus can you ha- actually have simultaneously going, which is exciting. And then there was that five-year period where we everybody wanted every set to look like Circuit City front window. 50 monitors it's going to be fantastic and so now it's like this this selective we, we are obviously can all carry mul- a multiplicity of images happening while we're watching something which is exciting because metaphorically you can start to you can start to bring other events into into contradictory alliance or dialogue with each other it's exciting as a director and when you can get a, a and you can make things move without moving people on stage now. You use a video track, and you can have things, and there's movement. You don't, things don't go dead. You can, you can sustain things longer. But, but um, and I just did this show, this show that just closed last night. This, it's a Lemony Snicket project. I did, where the whole first half of the, of the show is a movie. We shot a movie, but there's a live actor that interacts with every single, every line of the movie. So, and that was different. It was different. It was, it was a, I said, I'm not going to show a movie in the theater, but I, am gonna, but I am interested in doing an interactive movie. But that was, by the way, that's really, really hard 
because the actor has to memorize the timing of every single line, space, and fill it exactly. It's really hard. But it was good. It worked. It worked. Well, thanks for being here today. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.